I used to think of termites as just another threat in a risk-riddled world. When the roof fell in, what were you in the bathroom? No, it didn't fall on my head. It's not that exciting. This is Carolyn, owner of a formerly termite-infested house. It was the middle of the night. It was raining. Like a whole circle of the ceiling and the plaster came down in one mm. in one go. Which opened the bathroom up to the sky. So whenever you went to the <laughs> toilet, I had to keep an umbrella in there. So you'd sit on the toilet with the umbrella when it rained because it was right over the toilet. It was fairly exciting when it fell down. Exciting, maybe, but destructive too. That's what termites were to me. Until I met Sebastian. I'm Sebastian Oberst. Sebastian is a senior lecturer at the University of Technology, Sydney, and a core member of the Centre for Acoustics and Vibrations. It's a very cool centre. You must, be, you must be chuffed when you go to our centre. I did go, and I was chuffed, but we'll get to that. And uh, we did one experiment where we had a look at how termites react to loaded wood fibre. So wood that's weighted down. We had a control experiment one side we offered termites just wood, which was not loaded. And on the other side, we provided them with little wood stumps, wood beams, which were loaded by about 70 kilos, for instance, in the lab experiment, and over 200 kilos in the field experiment. Enough weight to do damage falling down onto a human, let alone a tiny insect. And we found that termites explored both sides first, but then they moved to the unloaded side. The safe side, without any weight. And ate up the wood. So then they don't, didn't have food anymore. So next thing, they, they went back to the loaded side and didn't eat the wood straight away. They first built clay walls around the wood stumps and then ate it in secrecy behind these clay walls. So when the scientists pulled down the experiment, they found these clay walls were only on the weighted side and they were basically proportional to the load on top. So they substituted the, the wood for clay. So they detect the stress, they manipulate their surroundings to, to eat the food they need to eat. Otherwise they would be squashed basically under the load. This episode is about termites. What they destroy, what they build, and the things we could learn from them if only they could talk. You're listening to Think Sustainability. I'm Nina Kopel. I'm walking into a house in Dulwich Hill. This is Sydney's inner west, so I'm right under the flight path. I walk through the gate and hesitate at the open door. Knock, knock. Hello. That's what I sound like when I meet a cute dog. And that's what I sound like when I meet another human. But to be honest, it's not humans that drew me to this house. Or dogs. Uh, my name's Carolyn, and at the moment I inhabit this house in Loftus Street with some termites and some other friends as well. Some of the friends are there when I go to visit. There's Therese. I'm an artist. My name's Lynn. Lynn's another artist. Then there's Mississippi the dog. Cat the human. I'm an artist as well. And then there are the termites. I've been working off and on on this project with Therese and Carolyn and Lynn over the last couple of months and discovering the wonderful vibrational world of termites and the emotions that come along with it. 
This all started with a reluctant purchase. Well, I was, I was renting in Annandale when I moved down from Brisbane. This is Carolyn again. And essentially, I had to buy a house because I have a dog. And people don't like dog owners. And um, so I came home from open house at the art college I teach at and bought this on the way home. So I was in a bit of a rush. Um, <laughs> and then, I mean, I bought it because it was secure and double brick, but I have probably didn't do I did a pest inspection but so I don't know when the termites whether they were here then already or later but there was a dodgy extension out the back. A dodgy extension Carolyn was pretty keen to get rid of and one day a unique opportunity presented itself. Therese had this fantastic device in her studio that emitted vibrations and Carolyn saw it saw it in my studio she's like what is that thing which is sometimes, yeah, often people's reaction to it because it's quite a strange thing. The initial plan for this machine was to vibrate down the foundations of an institution like an art gallery. Like, to literally take the building's foundations down. And the idea was so exciting. To attempt to deinstitutionalize the space through, vibrator, like through a vibrations yeah, practice really yeah. excited me. Yeah, yeah. But art spaces weren't quite as excited by this prospect. Because institutions didn't really want you to try to break (laughs) the foundations of the ground down, which surprised me. I think that's what an exciting thing to want to do in a space. So Therese had a potentially foundation deconstructing vibration machine and Carolyn had a house with a dodgy extension. The end result here was basically inevitable. So I said, well, you should come around to my house and try to crack the concrete at my house. That sounds like a fun day. And from what I've heard, it was fun. So I'm just trying to find Loftus Street videos. Carolyn's looking through a hard drive for films they took on the fateful day they tried to vibrate down the extension. You're just going to see a lot of failures, essentially. Describe what we're seeing. Um, I don't know how I would describe that. That's just like a vibrating motor bolted to concrete. That's, <laughs> that's quite an apt description. <laughs> I couldn't put my finger on it at the time, but Teresa's machine definitely reminded me of something, and I worked out what it was. It looks like the vacuum cleaner in the Teletubbies. His name's Nunu. Look it up. And it started to pop out. See, I'm still excited just watching it. It started to pop out of the bolts, out of the concrete. So rather than break through the concrete, as was our interest, was to deconstruct spaces, is the the shared interest. Instead of doing that, it deconstructed itself out of the space. So the machine failed. Carolyn's dodgy extension remained intact, and Therese took apart her machine in frustration. But what the residents of Loftus Street didn't realise at the time is that while they were trying to vibrate the house down, another destructive force was already at work. The moment of discovering the termites. How did it happen? Where were you? Set the scene. Uh, So that was, I didn't realise that the damage to the bathroom was from termites. Remember that story at the beginning? Carolyn having to sit on the toilet with an umbrella? I just thought it was because there were dodgy additions to the house. And we came over one night. That's Therese jumping in. And Carolyn was in... No, this was after... This was late. You were in your pyjamas and you just started, like, pulling the wall off. Like I said, Carolyn really wanted to get rid of that extension. We had a a spontaneous demolition. Oh, yeah. I didn't realise that was... (laughs) I was in my (laughs) pyjamas. I was looking at photos the other day. It was kind of great. So they pulled off a bunch of wall. 
So then we saw that the timber was kind of like rotted, rotted and eaten. Yeah. And then That's Carolyn right. went the next day and saw actual termites as well. Yeah, I did. That's right. The next day I came in and saw live termites. But the artist's attempt to vibrate down the extension had had an unexpected consequence. By the time they brought a pest controller onto the scene, they said there's definitely no live termites. The pest guys said that. The termites were gone. Was yeah. that the jackhammer? jackhammer or was no, that, that was Teresa's no, device. The weird and wonderful vibration machine. Teresa had used it twice and they thought that those vibrations had got rid of the live ones. Could it really be? Did the artist's failed attempt to vibrate down Carolyn's extension send away the very force that was successfully deconstructing it for free? It seems far too ironic to be true. And I wasn't sure it was even possible. But I knew someone who could help me find out if it was. So my, my main research is concerned with uh, complex dynamics. This is Sebastian Oberst again, from the University of Technology, Sydney. One of the more interesting applications is termite communication. Put simply, the man is learning to talk termite. I'm trying to understand how termites speak. <laughs> I'm trying to uh, speak termite eventually and decode their language because they, they speak like in a different language, that's all. That's all. No big deal. Nothing hard about that, except for the fact that they communicate completely differently to humans. They are blind. They live in the dark in a termite mound. Can't see anything because there's no light, no sunlight. And they are also deaf. They don't hear acoustic sound. They don't hear airborne sound. Which made him ask, How do termites detect their predators? Because it turns out ants really like to eat termites. They have very thin cuticle and they're very nutritious to them. But before the ant can eat the termite, it has to find it. Sebastian and some of his colleagues did an experiment where they went into grassy woodland reserves and placed over 260 log discs, which are basically bits of wood, in different places to attract insects and wildlife. So the, the idea is that under a piece of wood, you find a lot of animals use it as a refuge. And then by counting those animals and the type of animals, the number and type, you can uh, conclude how healthy the ecosystem is at this, at this spot. It was kind of like they set up this space for an exciting insect party. And because the guest list, the music, and most importantly, the food, were all on point, the guests swarmed. First ants showed up, but then very shortly after, termites swooshed in and they were not eaten by the ants. They were harmonious in insect party land for a while. And the termites had a good time without being eaten. Until the scientists came back, shut the party down and all hell broke loose. So once we've lifted up the, the woodlock, the ants were crawling over the termites and killing them all and eating them. 
But lifting the log also revealed a key element in the termites' survival up until this point. A clay wall, a couple of millimetres wide, had been hiding the termites from the ants. They didn't detect them before, and they couldn't go through their clay walls. So in party land, this was kind of like the termites were hanging out in this beautiful, big, rented marquee, while the ants were having a good time, having a dance under the night sky. But when the scientists moved the log, the clay wall was broken down, allowing the ants to swarm the termites. It's kind of like the marquee fell down, and only when the ants could see the termites did they know they were there. The thing about having a party, though, is normally you make a bit of noise. The marquee, or the clay wall, would have hidden the termites from sight. But how did it stop the termites from being heard? So termites we found when we looked at the ants and the termites, the the termites are about 100 times quieter than their predators. And so maybe my example of a party was a bit off. Instead of a party, imagine it's actually a war zone and the termites are sending secret encrypted code. By communicating over a different communication channel, they are dodging their predators. They cannot be eavesdropped. And their method? The way termites send and receive these secret messages. Vibrations. This is all done over vibrations. The wonderful vibrational world of termites and the emotions that come along with it. Knowing this about termites, it's easy to imagine what happened at Loftus Street that day. That the termites in Carolyn's house picked up on the vibrations of Teresa's machine perceived it as a threat, and scarp it off. So they have sensing organs in their legs and their antenna, and they use their legs as a tripod, and uh, with three legs on the ground, they can determine where the wave comes from, the direction, and they can localize, probably even localize, um, their predators very accurately. And if termites can localize their predators, they can avoid them. So it's an arms race, an evolutionary arms race, going on for millions of years, but they have somehow developed these passive defense mechanisms not being detected. Instead of having heavily armored soldiers who can defend the nest, they can't. But knowing termites speak in code is one thing. Being able to break the code is another. And very hard to study because the When you do experiments, you have to always disentangle all the different signals they do from the signals you want to study. So when you want to study, for instance, the feeding signal, you have always the walking signal in between. So in order to distinguish the two, you have to first understand the walking signal. And then you have to do a couple of years research in the walking signal before you finally, hopefully, at some stage, can disentangle the walking from the feeding signal. But slowly, signal by signal, Sebastian is translating termite code from vibrations to sound. And we can make it audible, like these vibrations, we can make them audible. But making them audible is a whole other story. Okay, I think that is probably good. Where are we? We are here in Tech Lab in the Acoustics Laboratories. And um, this here is the corridor, I would call it, which leads to the anechoic chamber, the semi-anechoic, and the reverberation room. 
First, we go into the reverb room. It's reverberating here. Then we enter the semi-anechoic chamber. So there is almost no reverberation. You know what it feels? The only comparative thing I can think of, of what it feels like, is you know when you're a little bit tipsy and you feel a little bit slower? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's how I feel. I don't know why. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It's like an illusion. (laughs) An acoustic illusion, not an optical illusion. So it influences your balancing system as well. And finally... This is the full anechoic chamber. Now it's uh, stronger, the feeling of the pressure. So we have nowhere reflections. Also the ground doesn't reflect. This is why you're walking on a trampoline, trampoline floor. Being alone in an anechoic chamber is the closest thing you can experience to being a termite. Nothing to see, nothing to hear. And uh, here we can do, for instance, termite experiments. Sebastian first tried to record termite vibrations with something called an accelerometer, but that didn't work. It sounds kind of like old radio noise when you had that, like, buzz. That's when right. you didn't have the channel. Yeah, so that's, that's like white noise. It's like channel noise. We don't hear anything, basically. And this is where the engineering comes in, working out complicated formulas to filter out background sound from vibrations. It's only the insect walking. And being able to do this, filter the noise from the vibration, means that Sebastian is getting closer to receiving messages the way a termite would, identifying specific signals like for feeding. It sounds like scratching sound, but it's not. Sebastian can also identify an alarm signal. The interesting part is, from the evolutionary point of view, the the features of termites alarming and ants walking are the same. So they have the same frequency and the same amplitude to their main predators, which means the alarm signal has emerged from from the predator signal over evolution. It's like danger and ants are synonymous to termites. So they mimic basically the ants walking in order to drum alarm, (laughs) which is very funny. And they literally just drum their head on the ground. If Sebastian had been at Loftus Street when they were using Teresa's device, if somehow he could have transformed Carolyn's dodgy extension into an anechoic chamber, whip out his fancy equipment and listen for signals, maybe he would have heard the ant-like rhythm that means danger was afoot. Enough danger to send the termites on their way. But as we live in the real world, where that particular hypothetical seems a bit too crazy, we can't know for sure what happened. We're left to wonder why the termites left and what it meant that they were there to begin with. I'm not sure if, you, if you've read this, but there are a number of recorded instances where termites, you know, loving to eat kind of anything pulpy, have also broken into banks and chewed through thousands and thousands of dollars. It's kind of hilarious. This is Kat, one of the artists at Loftus Street. There was a group of termites that got into a bank in India and ate through, you know, thousands of rupee, which is what? I listened to a report on that one in India and they're not sure if they've made that up. This is Carolyn owner of the house at Loftus Street. Is that the one where they're they're saying that termites have eaten all the money but they think they've actually, potentially, they just stole it? It kind of even gets more interesting if if the story's a construct. That they're investigating at the moment and the people that they claim that termites ate all the money. I like it. I like that very much. (laughs) Beautiful excuse, isn't it? (laughs) The termites ate my homework. 
Termites ate the GDP. (laughs) And so the stories we construct about termites are often about deconstruction and consumption. But there's an evocatively creative and constructive story to tell about termites as well. Termites are not only able to sense vibrations and keep quiet, they're also able to manipulate their surroundings. And they do so in pretty ingenious ways. We know all they, they keep the temperature and the humidity and they maintain the airflow in the mound, which has inspired architects to build termite-inspired houses. This idea was so exciting to me. I knew I had to find a termite house. The only problem is there's only one architect in the world who seems to be designing them. And he's only done two of these types of buildings. One is in Harare, Zimbabwe. But as my good fortune would have it, the other one is not that far away. I'm sitting in a cafe in Melbourne's CBD, in the shadow of a building called CH2, or as I plan to affectionately refer to it, the Termite Building. It's nine stories high, simplistic but modern in design. Its most striking feature is a wall of timber shutters. Right now, they're slanted against the morning sun. It's used as an office building for Melbourne City Council, and as I sit and have some coffee, I imagine the people walking past are termites scurrying to do the Queen's bidding. My name's Rob Adams. Um, I'm the Director of City Design and Projects at the City of Melbourne. Rob works on Level 6 of the Termite Building, and despite his fancy title, his desk sits in the corner of an open-plan office. The only thing separating him from other staff is the long meeting table we're currently sitting at. If this was a termite mound, would you be the Queen? No, I'd be in charge of the workers. (laughs) There are often three castes in termite society. The soldiers, the king and queen, or the reproducers, and the workers. But I'm not really sure if the worker termites have a director for city design. No, I've, I've got no uh, pretensions about ever being the queen or the king <laughs> or, the, or the CEO or the, the head. I, I enjoy the craft that I practice, and uh, that's what's important to me. I'd like to be good at it. But there is a real termite energy to the space, People scurry around busily, occasionally dropping a message in front of Rob. Do you want to respond to the post-it? No, I've just got to go by 9.30, so we've only got half an hour. Is that OK? That's cool. We'll yeah. Go quick. The decision to make the termite building came in 2004. I hadn't realised at the time that the biggest challenge with a building in Melbourne is how you, in fact, keep it cool. And, and I thought it would be heating in Melbourne, but it's not. I mean, when you have computers and people in a building, they heat up the building naturally. So the biggest challenge is how do we cool this building? And Melbourne has this unique climate uh, which is changing, which has uh, maybe become an issue for this building, where in summer you get hot days, but quite often cool nights. And while Melbourne's climate is unique, it did have similarities to places in Africa, where you also get hot days and cool nights. And what the termites have done is actually worked out how they use that to their advantage. And humans? Well, they've been working out how to use termite knowledge to their advantage. And so there was a building in Harare where I was born, designed by an architect uh, who was a good friend, Mick Pierce, and it had been based on the, the principles of an anteo. A white ant is a type of termite. And what this did was say, 
you don't need to have a highly sophisticated building. You could have a fairly robust building that used simple principles and produced a, a, a good environmental outcome. So Rob asked Mick to work on a design for them that reflected the termite principles of airflow. The, the termites use moisture inside their, uh, their mounds. So they will actually get moisture down from below and, and bring it up and then allow air to f- flow through. And Mick the architect took this idea to Melbourne for his termite building. So between the windows, uh, they look like walls, but they're in fact ducts. And so the air is coming down from the roof, under the floor and coming up. If you look on the south side of the building, the ducts are light colour. If you look on the north side of the building, they're a dark colour. So when the sun shines on a dark colour, it heats it up. So you get this natural suction of air through the building just by changing the colour of the surface of material. The office also gets cooled from above. These things you see on the ceilings are chill beams. They're just a radiator. They're just a copper pipe with cool water going through. And that's how we cool the building down. So um, it's again a reflection of how the termite would have seen the environment. But there's an even more impressive feature working to cool this building down. Its biggest invention, uh, which I often smile at, is it opens its windows. Uh, And, you know, how dramatic is that, uh, given all the buildings we've designed over the centuries? The building has sensors to identify when it's cooler outside than in. And when it is, the windows automatically open. And the cool air flows through the building, cools down the concrete, and then in the morning you lock it down again, and you've in fact got the first few hours of air conditioning free of charge. But the aim of this building wasn't just to preserve energy or save money. It was to look after the well-being of its occupants. It's 100% fresh air in the building. And that means that uh, when it was assessed by the CSIRO, they, they basically said that uh, you save 10% of well-being and productivity of the staff in the building. That amounts to about $2.4 million a year. And the extra features we put into this building cost about $11 million. Is that savings in terms of people taking leave and health? That's right. Uh, you know, just being more productive, the absenteeism was lower um, and, and significantly lower. And uh, so you add all that up and uh, the building effectively paid for its, um, you know, unique features in about five years. And so the termite features of this building make it a better place for humans. But Rob tells me it isn't easy convincing people to adopt the mound mentality. And so one of the things we've found about this building is that not all the people who work in it fully understand the way it operates. And so I'll give you an example. Um, When we first uh, started and people moved in, they said there's no air conditioning because they couldn't hear any air conditioning because it comes very quietly through the floor. And uh, so we said, no, there's air conditioning and you're getting more air than you normally get. And it's not mixed up with all the pollutants, it's actually fresh air. And they were worried about that. So we actually put a white noise on the floor. So there's artificial noise, it makes it sound as though there's air conditioning. Are you serious? Yeah. It's like the occupants of the termite building are doing the exact opposite thing to Sebastian in his laboratory. Instead of carefully filtering away the white noise, to try and understand what termites are saying, they're intentionally burying termite ideas with human interference. So I'd I'd give that as an example because somehow the termites all communicate with each other and they all work collectively together to make the mound work. 
Um, we found there's been points of resistance because people get used to what they're used to. You know, if I don't hear air conditioning, I'm not getting it. And this is the thing Rob says it's most important to learn from termites. They actually work in unison to make the mound work. If we're serious about, you know, designing buildings that are, are better equipped for the future, then we need to, in fact, have a narrative um, that clearly the termites have that's seen them all pulling in the same direction. But what if, when we humans do pull together, get rid of the white noise and try to learn from termites? What if we use our discoveries to destroy the very thing that inspired us? What do you think the impact of knowing how termites speak, of being able to speak termite, what can we gain from that? Yeah, so the, the main gain, I think, for, for an application side and for Australia is um, building vibration-based uh, pest control instead of using chemical pest control. It turns out the artists at Loftus Street weren't too far off with their theory about Teresa's vibration machine. They said there's definitely no live termites after we'd been using the device in the concrete. We'd, Therese had used it twice and they thought that those vibrations had got rid of the live ones. I asked Sebastian about this and he said in their early experiments they actually did something similar, using a mechanical vibration device to try scare off the termites. So you can probably just call off the studies. I know. <laughs> but it didn't work. Sebastian said termites are too smart. They know when something's natural and when something's mechanical. And even if it had worked, it wouldn't have worked for long. Since when you play back signals to animals, they get used to that. And then they, they um, lose their, their function in the end, these devices. So we need to have something which is smart enough to fool the termites. I find it interesting because you clearly are really interested in the termites and you have a passion about learning about them. Yeah. Are you conflicted in using that? to control termites? Well, it's more, it's more about protecting um, infrastructure and houses using non-chemical pest control, which is good for the termites and is good for, 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 for Australia as well. At the, the, the conflict is actually when, when humans cross the boundary to nature. So when we build a house in a nature reserve, we have to expect termites will attack our house. And this happens everywhere where humans are close or building close to nature reserves. They are more infested by termites or they are more often attacked, these houses. So how can we come to a, to a way of deterring, for instance, termites or using less chemicals by um, using smart controls like vibration-based controls? I think it's not against the termites. It's not for eradicating them. It's just driving them back to the forest but the artists at Loftus Street don't really buy this. this. This constitutes a really rich natural environment for a termite. A house is a great feeding space. What is natural and what is unnatural? Yeah, that's about that's protecting capital. Well, I think yeah. it's more preventing. So if your house is emitting the, the vibrations that are saying don't come in here, yeah. then you don't have the termites coming in and then you don't have to kill them. But it is pest control. Yeah. That's like a boundary issue, colonising, putting in a fence, saying we want termites over here, we want nature over there. Like that lovely English notion of a garden. A garden is something you look at, it's pretty, you contemplate, you wear shoes out there, you don't really touch it that often. So it's that kind of, yeah, relation. I mean, the reality is if they go into a house, people are going to kill them. I mean, it's like what, true. It's what you're yeah. doing to yeah. them as well. When I went to Loftus Street, Carolyn hadn't put down any poison, but so she was planning on it. 
yeah, I've got to put this poison down when the sand goes down. It's law, like the council require it as well. But I also feel kind of sad that I'm also like pushing them away. There's, um, yeah. So maybe there is something to say if they don't go into the house. That's true. They won't die. Yeah. I don't know. His point is interesting as well, that he's trying to stop them getting poisoned. But there might be a more interesting way to communicate ultimately with the termites as well. Like, you know, they're architects as well. Maybe there's a way that we could, I don't know, enable them to do something that's something that joins together rather than that stay away fence. There's um, maybe there's more interesting things they can do. They are the best architectural species on the planet, aren't they? Supposedly from what I've seen with the mounds that they build and the, the air conditioning built in and um, yeah. Yeah, didn't they just last year find that termite mound in Brazil? It's like this network, it's like the largest, largest form of non-human or human architecture in the world is this interconnected set of termite mounds. And they just found out last year that they're all kind of intertwined. Yeah. Intertwined like ideas about construction and deconstruction, communication and interpretation, creation and destruction. Termites are all these things. But so are we. We are as capable of killing and colonising as we are of innovating and designing. So I'm not really sure where that leaves our two species, humans and termites, as we continue to coexist on this planet. All I know is that if I ever could converse with a termite, I feel like we'd have a lot to talk about. Think Sustainability is made possible with the support of the University of Technology Sydney, 2SER in Sydney, and heard around Australia on the Community Radio Network. The studios of 2SER sit on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, whose people's sovereignty was never ceded. Subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts, and don't forget to leave us a review. I'm Nina Copel. Thanks for listening. <laughs>